Lowe's knows top outdoor power equipment. And now's the time to get your yard ready for spring with Ego Outdoor Power Equipment starting at $219. Experience the latest innovations in outdoor battery power from Ego, like Speed IQ technology that adapts mower speed to your stride. Get continuous non-stop trimming with the Line IQ String Trimmer and get added steering wheel precision with the E-Steer Zero Turn Mower. Shop Ego, the number one rated brand in cordless outdoor power. Only at Lowe's today. Today, we're resharing our breakdown on Ethereum. This episode was originally released in May 2021 and became the inspiration for Web3 Breakdowns. Please enjoy. Business Breakdowns is sponsored by Tegas. We created Business Breakdowns to uncover the lessons and frameworks behind every business, and that's what makes Tegas our perfect launch partner. Much of the foundational prep for these episodes gets started with research powered by Tegas. With Tegas, you can learn about any public or private company directly from former execs, customers, and industry experts all of whom are in a position to offer unique insights into a company's growth, its customer value, and its competition. What makes Tegas different is that you don't have to lead your own expert calls. It offers instant access to the world's largest collection of investor-led call transcripts on companies like Coinbase, Hinge Health, and Farfetch. All you have to do is log in and you'll get instant access. Still want to do your own expert calls? Tegas also allows you access to experts for $300 a call, not the $1,000 or more that others charge. I can personally say that some of the most thoughtful investors in the world use Tegas and talk about it often. If you're ready to go deeper on any company and you appreciate the value of primary research, head to tegas.co slash breakdowns for a free trial. That's tegas.co slash breakdowns. This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Hello and welcome to Business Breakdowns. I'm your host, Patrick O'Shaughnessy. Today's episode is an experiment. Rather than focusing on a business, we will be breaking down the cryptocurrency Ethereum. Launched in 2015, Ethereum is a decentralized blockchain like Bitcoin, but is far more programmable, meaning other applications and currencies can be built on top of it. Its native cryptocurrency is Ether, which today stands as the second most valuable cryptocurrency after Bitcoin. Perhaps even more interesting, transaction fees on the Ethereum network have recently approached $50 million per day, meaning there is real and growing demand to use the Ethereum network. In this breakdown, we explore what differentiates Ethereum from Bitcoin the increasing number of projects being built on the platform, and what a shift from proof of work to proof of stake means for Ethereum. To help me break down Ethereum, I'm joined by Justin Drake. Justin is a key researcher at the Ethereum Foundation and one of the smartest people I know on Ethereum and cryptocurrency more broadly. Justin helped popularize the notion of Ethereum as ultrasound money, and we'll dive into that and so much more. I hope you enjoy this breakdown of Ethereum. So Justin, this is going to be a masterclass on one of the most interesting phenomenon assets. I don't know what you want to call it, currencies in the world, that being Ethereum. 
To begin, the whole theme here is going to be to go from very simple to fairly complex because this is a complex system. And I think to understand its potential, we need to go there. But let's start simple, which is a level set on what a blockchain is in the first place. How do you describe blockchain systems to your mother or someone that's uninitiated in this technology? So I think of a blockchain as a coordination platform for people on the internet who don't necessarily trust each other or know each other. It's kind of extending the superpowers of the internet. The internet in its first stage gives us incredible communication powers with real-time video and, and whatnot. And now we're extending this to the ability to be this trust platform for people who don't trust each other. It's a, a way to build ties. And that's very powerful because trust is everywhere in our society. And the way that trust is mediated today is largely through companies and corporations and institutions, and to a large extent mediated through legal contracts. So here we have a, an opportunity to have programmatic trust, if you will, or trust that is native to the internet, which does not involve so much human intervention. It's more trust in the code, trust in the mathematics, trust in the technology. And this really opens up all sorts of exciting innovations. Maybe we can begin introducing some of the key concepts that we'll talk about for Ethereum by first explaining them for Bitcoin, because I think Bitcoin is actually a bit simpler to understand. So if you think about Bitcoin as what trust is being shared, it's sort of the position and the ownership of literally Bitcoin. These It's a ledger of who owns how many of these 21 million Bitcoin that will ever be created. Talk through some of the key concepts here, the security behind it, the notion of proof of work, which we'll return to to contrast proof of stake with later for Ethereum. What are the core concepts that you think are important for people to understand about Bitcoin? Bitcoin is this ledger which keeps track of who owns how much Bitcoin. And this is very important because money is basically just that. It's a ledger to keep track of who has how much purchasing power. In terms of the security properties, my analogy is the analogy of time. Time has three key properties. The past is immutable. It's happened and you can't change it. The second property is the fact that the present is a shared experience, open for all. The future is something that is inexorable. It must happen. You can't stop it. Really, you can think of Bitcoin as this computer, this very simple computer, which maintains a ledger, which has these three properties. On the one hand, the past transactions that have happened are immutable. You can't go back in time and change them. In terms of the present, everyone can agree what is the state of Bitcoin today. And you don't have to trust any specific person. You can just access this public good. And then in terms of the future, we have this property called censorship resistance, meaning that anyone who does want to come in can come in. And if you think abstractly of Bitcoin as being this simple computer, this calculator, if you will, it can do a few operations like plus, minus, divisions, etc. Like Ethereum is just a generalization where you go from calculator to computer, but it has all the same security properties around the immutability, being a shared public good and having the censorship resistance. One of the things that I think people find so appealing, I'm introducing these concepts for Bitcoin so that we can use them as contrast for Ethereum. One of the compelling things is that we sort of now all agreed that a Bitcoin means something, that it has some value. You can see the value every day, you know, every second on a whole bunch of websites. People talk about digital gold all the time. There will only ever be 21 million. So thinking about your future concept, we can be quite sure the supply is fixed and that there is something that secures that supply. Can you talk about security 
and why security is such a key component via proof of work? There's several things that are interplaying here. One is Bitcoin, the platform, Bitcoin with a capital B, and then there's Bitcoin with a lowercase b, which is the, the asset. And just for the sake of the podcast, I'm going to say BTC to refer to the asset. There's kind of two things going on. On the one hand, you have BTC, the asset that has legitimacy as an asset. And it has legitimacy because it has high-grade security. It has this, as you said, very legitimate issuance policy. It was the very first asset that was created in this new paradigm. And on the other hand, you have the blockchain. And basically, the asset is very much responsible for the security of the blockchain. And the way that that works is that we have these so-called miners that are consensus participants. So they help these group of untrusted people to come to consensus. And it's a very resource intensive thing. The basic security premise that we have, the assumption that we have is that at least 50%, so at least half of the resources securing Bitcoin are honest, meaning that they'll follow the rules of Bitcoin. And the way that we incentivize that is by giving these consensus participants freshly minted BTC. There's very synergetic relationship between the asset and the platform. And so in literal terms, because BTC, the asset has value and growing value, miners who are spending something, they're spending electricity costs, they're buying chips to sort of guess hashes more or less. They're willing to do that and spend all that money, which I'd be curious what that actually is in dollar terms, like how much miners are spending to sort of quote unquote, secure the network. And they're rewarded for that security participation with actual BTC, which has value. They could sell it for US dollars. They could go buy a house with it, whatever. So just say a little bit extra about that, like how much is actually being spent maybe in US dollar terms, so people really understand, to secure the network. The security of Bitcoin is based on this scarce resource, which is the proof of work, or some people call it the proof of waste, because you're proving that you've consumed this electricity, that you've kind of wasted it. And as you said, in the real world, the way that you produce this proof of work is by one, having hardware, and two, by spending electricity. And in dollar terms, it's about $50 million per day. So it's a very significant cost to the Bitcoin network from an economic standpoint, in the sense that you have a huge amount of issuance that provides sell pressure on the market because these miners, they receive the BTC as a reward, but for the most part, they have to sell it because they need to cover their expenses in terms of electricity bills and whatnot. Because mining is kind of this open game that anyone can participate in, the profit margins naturally tend to zero. So roughly of the 50%, $50 million per day that's being spent, roughly 100% of it is basically sell pressure. So we've sort of established Bitcoin. There's real costs going into real security for a very simple ledger, which is basically like who owns what Bitcoin, what amounts you can buy and sell. There's BTC, the asset. Obviously, there's a lot more than that. At a high level, that's Bitcoin. The original vision maybe of it being more about a currency that you exchange all the time has been less true. It's more been traded and owned and stored. That's sort of digital gold. Now we can finally get to Ethereum with a lot of that groundwork laid. What was the original impetus and early history here? Why was Ethereum created? What shortcomings of Bitcoin did it seek to address in the early days? So I think the ethos of Ethereum from a cultural perspective is to embrace innovation. And the very first innovation that it looked to embrace was 
basically unrestricted programmability. So Bitcoin does have a very simple programming language. Actually, technically, it's a scripting language, and it's extremely constrained. So you can do things like uh, multi-sigs. You can do things like the Lightning Network, which is this layer two payment system. But for the most part, it's not programmable. Ethereum decided to basically generalize the concept of a blockchain going from a simple spreadsheet to a fully fledged what's called Turing complete computer, meaning that it can run arbitrary contracts. And once we do that, we kind of reach escape velocity from a feature standpoint. We've provided anyone who wants to build on top of Ethereum all the power that they need because they have this Turing completeness. Now, basically, creativity and innovation is the limiting factor, not the blockchain, which has achieved this escape velocity. Say a little bit about the early days with Vitalik, the very famous co-founder of Ethereum. What was so special about his participation, his frustration maybe with Bitcoin? I think he was a very significant participant in Bitcoin, but started to build this as a better version. Say a little bit about him and his role early and through to today. After Bitcoin came, there was a bunch of other blockchain projects that tried to generalize Bitcoin. But the way they did it is kind of like a Swiss army knife. So Bitcoin provided like the basic knife and they started providing the scissors and all the other features. But it turns out that that's not very generalizable. It's not very future-proof in the sense that as soon as you have some use case that you can't think of that's outside this feature set of the Swiss knife, then you're out of luck. What you would do is you'd add a new feature, and that's expensive because you need to change the rules of the blockchain to add this feature. So instead, Vitalik was like, hey, we have an opportunity to do a one-time thing where we provide all the features that the programmers could ever wish for, and then we have escape velocity without having the need to constantly upgrade the blockchain to provide more and more features. I think it's really important to say exactly what this means. We've said a few times, Ethereum allows others to build on top of it. If you had to put those things into major categories, what would those categories be? Is it applications? Is it other currencies? Is it assets? Like, What are the major categories of things that get built on top of Ethereum, which make the core blockchain that much more valuable? Historically, we've seen all sorts of things. Like one simple non-financial application is called ENS, the Ethereum name system. The equivalent of DNS but on the Ethereum network. And the idea is that it's just a name registry service and it maps human readable names, you know, for example, justin.eth to a machine readable address, which is a, a long string of numbers and digits. And this would be the equivalent of translating, let's say, google.com to an IP address. The beauty of doing it on Ethereum is that you remove the very messy infrastructure of registrars and ICANN and DNS, whatever, root nodes and whatnot. And so basically you collapse all this messy trust infrastructure into just code and you just need to read the code. There's very few lines of code. And that's this registry, which is the mapping from human readable names to machine readable addresses. Now, that was one of the early use cases. What we are starting to see right now in terms of real traction is really in the financial space. And we call this space generally decentralized finance or DeFi. And really... I'd argued when it started was 2017 with ICOs. And this was the idea that, as you said, you could create your own assets. You can think of ICOs as being the equivalent of Kickstarter. You have an idea and then you want to do crowdfunding and then you issue these tokens, which basically represent a share of the future product that you're going to build. 
And then that led to an explosion of tokens. Now, what's the next natural step once you have a lot of tokens? Well, next natural step is to try and exchange them on the Ethereum blockchain. So one of the applications is Uniswap, which is basically allows you to swap tokens natively directly on the blockchain without an intermediary. The way that people would do these exchanges before Coinbase, before Uniswap was to go to Coinbase, you take your tokens, you put them into this trusted third party, Coinbase, and then you do the exchanges there. But now we're kind of basically expanding the layers of complexity of DeFi. And now we're starting to see all sorts of crazy things happening on DeFi. So we have lending platforms like Maker and Aave. We have prediction markets. We have insurance markets. And all of these are basically what we call money Legos. So they're pieces of infrastructure which are credibly neutral and trustless, and they're a public good. So even though they have a well-defined creator, that creator has no like unfair advantage over this piece of infrastructure. And so you have these money Legos and they have a superpower, which is that they're composable. We're starting to see organically these somewhat complex economic structures forming just by mushing together and mixing and matching these various money Legos. And right now we're in a, in a period of extreme experimentation, which is very thrilling and exciting. I'd love to drill from that experimentation and from say another token like the Uniswap token itself back down into the core Ethereum blockchain. So what we haven't introduced yet is the idea of transactions or gas or fees associated with using. If we think of Ethereum as a big computer, like a big global computer, it costs something to use that computer. And maybe the right analogy here is Amazon Web Services. Like if you want to use a cloud computer, you pay Amazon for the pleasure of doing that in dollars. Is that an interesting analogy? Can you introduce this concept of gas fees that Ethereum has and why there's sort of like commerce or productivity that's happening on top of ETH where you pay in ETH itself? Can you describe that concept? ETH is this native currency to the Ethereum project. One of the things we've discussed is that it's used as money to secure Ethereum. But it turns out that ETH is called a triple point asset. So it can do many different things. And one of the things that it can do is basically be a commodity, a consumable asset to access the scarce resource, which is the Ethereum block space. So the way that Ethereum works is that you can think of it as a computer, but it's a ridiculously tiny computer. Just to give you an order of magnitude, it's in terms of computing power, it's smaller than a Raspberry Pi. And in terms of internet connection, it's less than a, a home internet connection. So you have this tiny computer that's meant to be shared for the whole world and to run the world's financial infrastructure on the internet. And of course, you know, there's going to be some resource constraints. And the way this is solved is by basically an auction mechanism. So if you want to interact with the Ethereum blockchain, which is to send these transactions, as you said, which will modify the state of the computer, you have to pay transaction fees. You have to pay the, the so-called gas, as you said. Right now, there's an insane amount of demand for this gas. So to give you an order of magnitude, we're talking 20 to $30 million per day in demand for this gas. One of the use cases of, of Ethereum is to pay for the gas. One of the interesting things that's coming soon in Ethereum is the notion that this huge cash flow, tens of millions of dollars per day, is going to go towards reducing the supply of Ethereum. So basically increasing the moneyness, the money guarantees of Ethereum. So in Bitcoin today and in Ethereum today, all the transaction fees will go directly to the consensus participants. 
So it's not really a scarcity engine in the sense that all these tokens get recirculated in the economy and they're flowing. In the very near future, in, in about 70 days, we're going to have an upgrade called EIP-1559, which is going to take these transaction fees and destroy them. A good analogy here is actually oil, like gasoline. There's a fixed amount of gasoline in the world. It doesn't grow very fast. You know, you need millions of years or whatever it takes to produce gasoline. Total amount of gasoline is just keeping on reducing and reducing and reducing. And there's a similar effect with Ethereum where the total amount of ETH will basically deflate. It will reduce over time because of this burning aspect. This is a really key point, and I'd love to go into the detail here to make sure people understand. So again, we'll use the contrast with Bitcoin. BTC is ascribed value in large part because there is a known and fixed total supply. There will only ever be 21 million. There are two ways you can get it. You can get it as a transaction fee and you can get it as a miner for securing the network. But there's only ever going to be 21 million. I think one of the early criticisms of Ethereum was that there was no similar hard cap so if an ETH was valuable, one thing that could threaten that the supply of ETH just keeps growing like crazy. So then how can you be confident that your one ETH is going to hold value, let's say? So talk about what is the supply of ETH? How many are there? What causes issuance? What causes the number to go up? Historically, what has caused that number to go up? And what might cause it to go down in the future? So the issuance today is, the total supply, I should say, sorry, is about 115 million ETH. And the reason the number has gone up historically is to secure the blockchain. So you need issuance, freshly minted ETH, to basically provide incentives for the consensus participants who are providing these scarce resources to secure the network. It turns out that there's zero blockchains today that are secured by anything other than issuance. So you need issuance. One of the interesting facts is that there's different ways that you can secure blockchains. You can use proof of work, and that's extremely hungry on issuance. So if you think of proof of work as being a consensus engine, you can think of what is the efficiency of this consensus engine? Like how much fuel do you, does it need to consume in order to give you some unit of security? And it turns out that it's a very, very fuel inefficient consensus mechanism. And there's this other consensus mechanism, which we're working on in the context of Ethereum called proof of stake, which is roughly 10x more fuel efficient. So the total amount of issuance that we need to guarantee security will go down dramatically by a factor of 10x roughly. This is in the worst case, after we transition away from proof of work to proof of stake, the issuance is going to grow, but much, much slower than it's been growing historically. But actually, because of this fee burn mechanism that I talked about, and because of the fact that there's so much demand for the Ethereum block space, almost certainly we're going to be in a position where the fee burn is greater than the issuance. So we're going to be in a position where the total supply is going to reduce over time. We're going to have monetary deflation, which is kind of a very unique thing in the world of blockchains. We've never seen this before. And it's exciting because it's kind of taking this Bitcoin meme to the next level, right? So we have this saying, which is that if cap supply of Bitcoin makes it sound money, then a decreasing supply of ETH must make it ultra sound money. So this kind of started as a joke, but there's some real fundamentals behind this meme. Maybe even go one more level deep, which is to describe what literally is proof of stake. So staking usually means I'm putting some of my ETH, my chips into something. Describe literally what is happening in proof of stake versus proof of work. And what is the incentive for the stakers versus miners? What are the key differences here? Like, how is it actually working? This goes down to how does consensus work? 
when you have a group of untrusted people on the internet who want to come to consensus. The way that it works is basically voting. So you have a bunch of people who come in and they vote. And so long as 50% or more of the voters are honest and the system works. Now, the question is, how do you prevent bad voters from coming in or too many bad voters from coming in? And the way that you do the gatekeeping is with economic resources. For the case of Bitcoin, in order to become a voter in this consensus mechanism, you need to purchase hardware and to run the hardware and pay the electricity bills. And because hardware is roughly distributed around the world and cheap electricity is roughly distributed, it's very difficult for a single entity to amass more than half and attack Bitcoin. This scarce resource is, as I mentioned, very expensive for Bitcoin because you have these real world externalities which are expensive. In the case of proof of stake, the scarce resource is going to be money. So the way that you become a consensus participant, the way that you become a voter is by locking up some ETH, some ether, so specifically 32 ether that allows you to become a validator. And then that's going to give you the right to make these consensus votes, which we call attestations on a regular basis. So every epoch, every 6.4 minutes, you're going to make one vote, one attestation. And if you're making good attestations, you get rewards. And if you're making bad attestations or you know, even very bad attestations, for example, two attestations which are inconsistent with each other, then we're going to start penalizing you. And this is what provides the incentive alignment. The reason that proof of stake is so much cheaper than proof of work is because the cost of money, which is basically the opportunity cost of money, is relatively low, right? Let's say a few percent, like three, four, five percent. On the other hand, in proof of work, if you want one dollar of security, you're going to need to spend roughly one dollar per year in electricity cost and hardware, as opposed to in Ethereum, if you want one dollar of security, you're only going to need, let's say, five cents of issuance per year. Basically roughly a 20x efficiency improvement between proof of work and proof of stake. Is it fair to think about, let's say I've got a million dollars worth of ETH. Let's say I'm Coinbase. I've got some crazy amount of ETH and I want to go be a validator. I want to stake my Ethereum. I'm willing to do that because I'm going to earn a return on that money. And maybe it's three, four, 5%. Is that return in the form of issuance? Is that new ETH that is being created to basically compensate me for locking up my money? And what does lock up mean? Like, how long do I not have access to it if I'm a staker? To answer your first question, yes, part of your rewards are going to be issuance, freshly minted ETH. But there's a second source of rewards, which is what we call the tip, which is basically the part of the transaction fee, which is not burnt. So let me just dive into the transaction fee a little bit. So... The way that the burning mechanism works is that it burns what we call the base fee, which represents the basal level of demand for including transactions in the blocks at any given point in time. So it's the transaction fee that everyone is going to be paying equally to include their transactions in the block. But then there's a, another second order effect, which is what is going to be the ordering within a single block? So just to give you an example, Ethereum is kind of this internet of finance. And so there's a lot of activity. And in particular, there's a lot of arbitrage opportunities. And arbitrage opportunities are basically free money for whoever is the first to go grab this money sitting on the table. The way that you're the first to grab the money is basically by being the first transaction in a block, or at least you want to be before the other arbitrages. And so the way that this inside the block ordering works in practice is through tips and these tips don't get burnt. So just to recap, 
the rewards that you get as a validator are number one issuance, but also these tips that don't get burnt. So if I'm staking money, I'm going to earn new ETH and it's coming from two places, those doing transactions. And I think of transactions as anyone that for Ethereum itself or anything built on top of it, want to update that ledger. Just think of finance as a big ledger, like there's assets and we know who owns what, and you can move from owner to owner that if you want to update that ledger, it's going to cost you something in gas. So therefore any app built on top of Ethereum uses gas fundamentally. Part of that gas is literally burned like normal gas would be. And part of it goes to validators as a way of compensating them for securing the network. Is that fair? Do I have that right? Yeah. The second part I'd say is used to bribe the validators to basically prioritize some transactions over others. So if you're doing an Ethereum transaction, and for example, I send you some ETH, I don't really care why I'm positioned in the block. But if I'm an arbitrager, for example, there's this race condition and positioning is extremely important. And this is where the tip comes in. Why is positioning important then? Because it's a winner-take-all situation. You have an arbitrage opportunity. There's, imagine like a dollar bill on the floor. Whoever is the first one to pick that bill gets the bill. Imagine that someone drops, let's say, $1,000 on the floor, and then you have people racing to it. And whoever's first to get that $1,000 gets to keep it. And it's the same thing here. For example, let's say there's two exchanges. There's Uniswap and SushiSwap. And they're out of sync in the sense that you can buy Ether for... $3,500 on one, but you can buy Ether for $3,400 on one. Well, here there's a $100 arbitrage opportunity. And the way that you extract the value of this arbitrage opportunity is by making a transaction, by modifying the state and cashing in the, the spread. But in order to do that, you need to be the very first one to go do that. And so the way that you achieve that in practice is that you're going to pay a kind of bribe, as it were, to the block producer, which is a validator, to get that priority positioning. Understood. So if we zoom all the way out, we've got this 115 million ETH supply today. What's going to affect that in the future is demand to use gas. So like more apps will be more demand. And the proof of stake concept is more efficient than Bitcoin. So you could argue, one, that both the issuance is better than Bitcoin and also that it's more secure than Bitcoin. Can you talk about that power to load concept that you've talked about elsewhere to make that comparison, sort of like the money being spent to secure Bitcoin versus Ethereum compared to its total size? One way to think of the security of a consensus engine is to imagine an actual physical engine. For example, the engine of a car. This car engine has some amount of power, and this, this power represents the amount of economic security powering the consensus engine. Now, this car also has some amount of load. It's under load, and this load represents the amount of economic value that is being secured by the consensus engine. And so when you look at the engine load to power ratio, for a specific blockchain, you're really looking at the amount of leverage an attacker has to wreck havoc. The higher the ratio, the worse things are. Now to make this concrete, let's look at Bitcoin. Bitcoin's economic security comes from hash rate, right? And, and the way you put a dollar amount on that hash rate is by asking yourself, how much would it cost to match and overpower Bitcoin's current hash rate? Now, Bitcoin has 
about 200 million terahashes of hash rate. Actually, a bit less, but let's say 200 million because it's a round number. And the purchase and installation costs, including shipping, transformers, buying the, the machines, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, of hash rate is about $50 per terahash. Actually, again, it's a bit less, but let's use a round number to make the math easy. So 200 million times $50, we're looking at roughly $10 billion of economic security for Bitcoin. Now, since Bitcoin's economy, its market cap is roughly $1 trillion, we're looking at a low to power ratio of 100, 1 trillion divided by 10 billion. This means an attacker only needs one unit of economic value to go attack and potentially destroy 100 units of economic value. They have leverage in their attack of roughly 100. Now, one of the key security issues long-term for Bitcoin is that issuance is going to zero because of the 21 million Bitcoin cap. So the amount of guaranteed fuel which will power the consensus engine relative to the size of the economy goes to zero. And my calculations actually suggest that Bitcoin's low-to-power ratio will shoot up well above a 1,000, making the overall system quite vulnerable to attack especially by nation states such as you know, the US or China, especially given that for these nation states, their annual defense budget is several times larger than the absolute dollar cost to attack Bitcoin, right? $10 billion or even you know, $20 billion is very, very small for them. Now with Ethereum, about 4% of all ETH is staking, which means the low to power ratio is 25, right? It's 100% divided by 4%. But actually, we also need to take into account that there is value secured by the Ethereum blockchain that is not ETH, that is not the native token. For example, there's thousands of tokens that are being settled on Ethereum, so-called ERC-20s. So actually, the low-to-power ratio today is closer to 50 with you know an additional factor of 2x added. The good news for Ethereum is that there will be significantly more ETH that will be staking in the coming years and months because the staking rewards are going to dramatically increase post-merge. And so the load to ratio, sorry, the load to power ratio will go down over time. What percent of the Ethereum supply do people expect will be staked? And I don't think we closed the loop earlier on. If I stake something, I know I can lose it. So that's one consequence to being a good staker. But how long do I have to give it up? I want to talk about solid liquid gas as an analogy, like ways to use ether in a second here. But one thing to do is just own it and that's it. I just own it and it just sits there or I can stake it. Just say a little bit more there about how much will be staked and what the consequences or requirements are of staking. So right now there's about 4 million ether that is staking. And in order to stake, you need to lock ether and you can unstake at any point that you want. There's an exit queue. If there's no one in the exit queue, then you can unstake very, very quickly. But if many, many people want to exit all in one go, then the exit queue might take months to clear. Now, in terms of how much ETH do we expect to stake, I'm expecting tens of millions of ETH to be staking. Let's say 20 million, 30 million, maybe more. And the reason is basically you can make projections around cash flows. So we mentioned there's two cash flows for validators that will affect the APR to be a validator. Number one is the issuance, and that's very easy to calculate. It's fully programmatic, and it depends on the number of total validators. 
And then the other one is the tips, basically the part of the transaction fee, which is not burnt. Today, we don't really know what fraction of transaction fees will be burnt and which fraction of transaction fees will be given, will be passed over to the validators. My rough estimate is 70%. So if we take that as an assumption and we look at the transaction fees in the recent past, it turns out that at the point of the merge, which is at the point where we remove proof of work, we replace it with proof of stake, and we start passing these non-burned transaction fees to the validators, the APR is gonna to jump to 25%. Then that's assuming uh, 6 million ETH validating. So of course, 25% is much, much, much higher than the cost of money, right? The opportunity cost of money plus the cost of staking. We can start making estimates. So what is the cost of money? Let's be conservative and let's say it's 5%. Probably lower, but let's be conservative. Now let's also look at the cost of staking. What are the resources that you need to put in to be a staker? Well, number one, you need a very small computer. We want stakers to be able to run on a on an entry-level laptop, you need a home internet connection. But then there's other costs like the possibility that you get slashed, maybe if there's some sort of bug. Slash is basically when you get penalized. Or the possibility that you start accruing these very small penalties if you start going offline. So let's put all these costs together and bottom them into one cost, which is, let's say, 1%. Overall, we expect that the APR will naturally tend towards, let's say, 6%. Now, if this assumption is correct, my calculations suggest that we're going to have roughly 30 million ETH staking. And this brings us back to the triple point asset thing that I was talking about. So we have the temperature of money. So we have basically three states of matter of money, which you can think of analogous to water, which has three states of money. You have water, which is very, very cold, below zero degrees, and it's frozen. You have water, which is between zero and 100, which is liquid, and water, which is above 100, and it's in a gas state. By default, ether that is issued is in its liquid state. But one of the powers of Ethereum is that it gives you the possibility to basically explore the full gamut, the full spectrum of temperatures, all the way from zero Kelvin to infinite temperatures. And so you can think of the process of staking as a freezing process, because you're taking liquid money, you're placing it as a collateral, which has very, very low velocity because it just stays there and you can't do anything once it's staking. And you can think of the burn as being a way to consume and basically to vaporize the money and have it exit the system. And so we're gonna be in a position where we're gonna have, let's say 120 million ETH. The extra five is basically issuance that we're gonna get from now to the point where we have all these optimizations. So we're gonna go from 115 million all the way up to 120 million. And my prediction is that we're, the supply of Ethereum will never go above 120 million. And so at the point where we peak, we're gonna start reducing the supply because there's going to be some ether which is vaporized and leaving the system. And if you actually, I kind of want to give the listeners a, an opportunity to hear what that sounds like. So I'm gonna play a little sound clip. So every time someone makes a transaction on Ethereum, some of the ETH will be vaporized and leave the system. It will become this gas money. And then on the flip side, when people are staking, the money is going to get frozen. And, and, and this is what it sounds like. And so at the end of the day, the liquid portion in the middle, uh, which sounds like this, by the way, the liquid portion in the middle will just be very, very small, right? Because you're going to have 
a large portion which is burnt, a large portion which is frozen, and a liquid portion in the middle, which will be fueling the high-velocity Ethereum economy. So that includes, for example, being available on exchanges to buy and sell, processing payments, for example, payments on NFTs for NFTs, or for example, being the unit of trading and the unit of liquidity on platforms like Uniswap, or being simply a store of value or a long-term investment. So I want to give an example here of maybe like a transaction to make it clear to people. That's fascinating, by the way, the first time sound effects on the show, which I love. Let's take an NFT. There's an NFT. I want to buy it and I want to use Ethereum to buy it. So walk us through like end to end. I'm sitting with an internet connection in my house. I've got some US dollars. I ultimately want to buy a Beeple NFT, let's say. What literally happens? Like, can you give us the sequences up to buying it and then back down to the Ethereum ledger itself in as much detail as possible? Okay, so you have US dollars and almost certainly these will be bank-based US dollars, so in total of bank accounts. Now, you're going to need some sort of onboarding platform that is able to talk bank money and crypto money. So let's say that you go to Coinbase, you deposit your bank money. Coinbase runs a, an exchange and a brokerage. So if you're new to the space, you might want to go to the brokerage where they just give you a price and you just click one button and you get your crypto, which is ETH in this case. Or if you're slightly more advanced, you can go to Coinbase Pro and they'll give you an, an order book based exchange and you can place your limit orders or market orders or whatever you want to do. Once you have ETH on Coinbase, this is custodial ETH in the sense that so Coinbase is acting as a bank account for your crypto. You're not really holding the Ether. So the next step is basically to hold the ETH in a wallet that you control. ETH is meant to be this bearer instrument, this digital bearer instrument, which is kind of really cool. And the way that you hold Ether is by basically having a wallet for which you know the secret, you know the password associated. So the password will give you the rights to go spend that ETH. So Let's say that you download a wallet. Maybe one good starting point is MetaMask. So MetaMask is this wallet, which is a browser extension. So let's say that you install it on Chrome and it will make it quite easy to interact with the Ethereum blockchain. The MetaMask wallet will give you an address, which is a long string of numbers and letters. You tell Coinbase what that is and Coinbase will send you the ETH to that address when you request a withdrawal. Now, if you want to buy an NFT, I guess first you want to decide on what you want to buy. So you can go to various websites. I'm not an expert on NFTs, but there's various catalogs where you can go and have a look. NFTs for auction or NFTs for direct purchase. And really what it means for an NFT to be available is some piece of the Ethereum state, which is going to represent that NFT. And it's going to be a ledger. So there's going to be some sort of identifier for the NFT, which is going to be a hash. It could be, for example, the hash of an image, the hash of a video, or the hash of something else. And associated with this hash is going to be a corresponding owner. And the way that we do ownership really in the crypto world is using public keys. It's basically cryptography that allows you to prove that you're the owner of something. So what it means to go buy an NFT is at the end of the day to basically change this ledger entry to add your public key as the owner of this hash. And the way that the mechanics of it work, it could either be like a direct payment. Atomically, like in the single transaction, the creator of the NFT will receive the ether and the ownership of the NFT will change hands 
from the creator to you, or it could be something more sophisticated like an auction. So you could have a smart contract which specifies, let's say an auction period of seven days. During these seven days, anyone can place bids, sealed bids or whatever bidding mechanism you want. That's all programmatically specified. And then at the end of the seven days, you just pick a winner and then the ownership changes hands. This is a great example. So let's say I buy direct. I have one ETH in my wallet. I'm moving one ETH to your wallet. How does that flow through to the things we talked about earlier in terms of transaction fees? So there's a cost to doing that. What is that cost? How is it calculated? And then is this where the concept that you've talked about now becomes reality, which is that some portion of that is just burned and some portion of that goes eventually to the validators? So one of the key properties of blockchains is decentralization. And one necessary thing for decentralization is that all the consensus participants need to be able to process and validate the whole blockchain with reasonable resources. So in Ethereum, we have very high standards for decentralization. And one of the things that we want is basically the validators to run and validate the Ethereum blockchain using entry-level laptop and entry-level internet connection. And so what that means is that the amount of processing power that this computer virtual computer, the Ethereum computer, can run is very, very limited. The way that we do the spam prevention or like prioritization of this resource, which is the Ethereum block space, is using a concept called gas. So when you make a transaction, it could be a very simple transaction, like you mentioned, sending one ETH from one place to another, and that's the simplest transaction, and that will cost you 21,000 gas. Is the minimum amount of gas that you're going to spend. Or you could do a very complicated transaction. Let's say that you want to participate in an auction and that's going to involve reading and writing multiple entries in the ledger and, and doing some math maybe to compare the larger bid or the smaller bid. You might be paying 100,000 gas. There's two important things. One is the gas limit. So basically how much gas there can be per block. And right now it's about 15 million gas. And the other thing is the gas price. So how much do you have to spend per unit of gas? This is a market determined thing. So there's a website called gasnow.org. It will tell you basically what is the cost of doing a transaction. So right now, the simplest transaction you could do, and it's kind of insane, will cost you $8 because the gas price is 110 guay. The current price of Ether is maybe 3,500. As you said, of this $8, some fraction of it will be burnt. I estimate 70%. It might be a bit lower, a bit higher. And then the portion which is not burnt would go towards the validators. I love the explanation. It makes it very tangible. Like to change the ledger in the simplest way today costs eight US dollars. Really straightforward, really simple. And you hear lots of complaints about like if you use Uniswap or back in the day of CryptoKitties, like transactions were just so expensive. Right now, there's more demand for transactions for changing that core ledger directly or indirectly than there is supply. Talk about how that may change. So that's a clear limitation of the Ethereum computer right now is the throughput of transactions. How will that be addressed in the future? Or is it a permanent deficiency of the system? On the one hand, the fact that we have so much demand is a fantastic problem. From a utilitarian's perspective, this is far, far from ideal because there's going to be some applications where even paying $1 or even paying $0.10 cents is just not worth it. 
right now, only the high value applications are worth it on Ethereum. You know, you're making a trade of $10,000, $100,000. And so the way that we address this and open up Ethereum to the whole world is through what we call scalability. And there's basically two ways to achieve scalability. One is layer one scalability, which is basically upgrading the Ethereum blockchain to be more powerful and be able to process more transactions. And two is layer two scalability, which is basically finding very clever ways to make better use of the resources that we have. And it turns out that for both layer one scalability and layer two scalability, we can get roughly 100x improvement. So once we have these two combined, they compound on each other and we get roughly 10,000x scalability, which will basically give us a system which can process transactions on roughly the order of magnitude as Visa, Visa scale transaction processing. The idea of layer one scalability is to go from a single blockchain, like a single Raspberry Pi with a single home internet connection to 64 Raspberry Pis with 64 internet connections. And the way that we achieve that is by basically taking the set of validators and instead of requiring them to all validate the same blockchain at any point in time, which is unnecessary redundancy. And we sample statistically representative committees. So when you want to do a survey or you want to know, for example, who's going to win the next election, you're not going to ask every single person in the US or in, in some country, that doesn't make sense. You're going to sample a thousand or 2000. But the good thing is that if your sampling is random, then these 1000 or 2000 people are going to be statistically representative of the wider population. If you have 50% of the validators that are honest, then your committees that you've sampled randomly will also have the same property. So you can take these committees and you can ask them to validate different blockchains, which we call shards. And that gives us this roughly 100x scaling at layer one. And then at layer two, the key innovation is basically to execute transactions without really e executing them. So it's execution minimizing the cost of execution. And there's two very clever ideas. Clever idea number one is to use cryptography to basically take a batch of transactions and instead of having to run every transaction and execute them individually, you're going to construct off-chain, that means outside of the blockchain, a cryptographic proof, which is very, very cheap to verify, that proves to you kind of cryptographically, mathematically, that all of these transactions are valid and they do such and such action. This is kind of moon math with an incredible amount of power, but it's moon math which is in production today. And is it, because it's so relevant to the blockchain space, the blockchain space has really pushed forward this field of cryptography called SNARKs, succinct non-interactive arguments of knowledge, if you're interested in digging deeper. So that's idea number one. And, and then idea number two for layer two scaling is what we call optimistic execution which is that you put the transactions on the blockchain, but you don't execute them. You basically have these bonded participants. So bonded means that they have put some amount of ETH at stake, let's say 10 ETH at stake, and they're going to make claims about these transactions. They're going to say, I claim that this transaction does such and such. You can trust me. You don't have to run the transaction. And then there's going to be this dispute period, let's say, of seven days, during which anyone can come in and say, hold on, this claim is actually wrong. And then the blockchain will act as a judge and basically adjudicate this very specific claim that there has been fraud. 
And then if there has been fraud, correct the fraud. And if there hasn't been fraud, then just continue. Seems like a key piece of Ethereum continuing to be an attractive place to both build and transact is just the throughput possibilities. With that in mind, I'd love to zoom maybe literally all the way out and talk about money and economic systems. So if you think about Bitcoin back in the day, I remember everyone was talking about the three uses of money. So you've got store of value, Bitcoin seems to have indeed done, unit of account and medium of exchange. And those second two, maybe the jury's out on whether or not Bitcoin will ever do those three things. If you think about something like the US dollar, it fulfills varying degrees of success, those three criteria of money. And then that money serves as a key function in an economic system. You've got this great analogy of economic systems and economic engines. I'd love you to walk through that concept for Ethereum. You've talked about solid liquid and gas, which was really interesting. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the design of the economic engine that makes Ethereum so interesting and strong as it relates to this big concept of like a broad economic system and money as sort of the thing that fuels that system. Money is a very interesting thing. It took me a long time to understand, and it might be good to try and define what money. So to me, money starts as a money candidate. So it's some sort of asset that has certain properties that mean that at some point in the future, it could become money. And what are these properties to become a store of value and a unit of account and mean of exchange are things like divisibility, fungibility, transportability, et cetera, et cetera. So if you have a cow, for example, that's an asset which will never become money because you can't transport cows easily. You can't you know, divide them easily and the leg is not equivalent to the head or whatever. So first step is to have this money candidate. And then you need another thing, which is what people call monetary premium. And monetary premium is kind of this, what I call magic meme energy. It's basically a societal illusion, like people coming to consensus and coordinating around this one asset and giving money value beyond its intrinsic utility. One example of this is commodity monies, right? So we have, we've had salt, we've had seashells, we've had gold, et cetera, et cetera. Like gold is an easy one to understand in our day and age. Gold is used everywhere in the industry, right? You have it in your phone, in your iPhone, et cetera. It has this intrinsic value and utility. But if you zoom out and you look at the market cap of gold, it's roughly $12 trillion. But only 10% of that kind of value is for industrial use cases. The rest, the 90%, is just pure monetary premium because central banks you know, like to keep it in vaults and things like that. One of the questions that you need to ask yourself is, what will be the next money for the internet? Right? We have this constant evolution of money, as I mentioned, you know, from salt to seashells and to silver, gold, and then Bitcoin. And now there's, with Ether, there's this potential to be the next step in money. From an economics standpoint, we call this like a shelling point, which is basically this place where people will naturally congregate to because it's the obvious place to congregate to. In order to become a shelling point, you need to have certain distinguishing properties that makes you stand out in the crowd of these money candidates. There's lots and lots of money candidates. Only some of them really achieve this strong monetary premium. And I'd say for Ethereum, one of the big ones, especially relative to Bitcoin, is programmability, right? Money in a native internet economy has to be programmable, just in the same way that it has to be digital, right? Gold is just so out of touch with reality in the sense that it's not even digital. But beyond digital, we want it to be programmable. But we also want other things that Bitcoiners have really highlighted, for example, supply. 
I think the fact that we have this decreasing supply is a unique thing which makes the ethers and money kind of distinguish itself. But the other thing that, that I think is interesting about ether, sorry, is that it's capable of really exploring this whole spectrum of use cases. One of the things that I mentioned was freezing money in the context of staking, but there's many other ways that you can freeze money. And that's in the context of decentralized finance. So right now there's roughly 11 million ETH, which is frozen in the sense that it's placed as collateral to fuel DeFi. So for example, so there's this website called DeFiPulse.com that will give you the breakdown of the total value locked in DeFi. If you take an example like, like Uniswap, you have these liquidity providers that have to basically lock their ether in order to provide liquidity against these other assets. And so by being this fully programmable money, the, you have various sources of scarcity that take away liquidity and place it either as a collateral and freeze the money, or in the case of utilitarian aspect of ether will burn the transaction fees. So you've got this cool concept where there's features of money candidates. One of those things that wasn't true really of the US dollar or maybe even Bitcoin is that they're not programmable. You can't stick them in code. You can't stick value into code. You can't move things around according to conditions, make commitments according to code, et cetera. So this is like a new feature added to the list of what makes money money, which is kind of wild concept. And then with Ethereum specifically, you've sort of got this shelling point concept, which I just think of as like the story behind it. We're going to start to agree more and more because it has the features that make money useful, that make an economy possible in more complex ways. And as time passes and as more acceptance happens, that is a key thing about this monetary premium concept of making Ethereum worth something, the cost of an ETH and a US dollar or something. And so you sort of have this bootstrapped <laughs> new money based on all those properties. Is there anything I missed there? Or is that kind of sum up what excites you most about ETH as money? You said it very well. You know, one of the other things I like to highlight is in terms of properties that make money money in our modern age would be security and decentralization. Ethereum has one of the most rigorous standards for decentralization. So just to give you an idea, we have right now 130,000 validators that are securing the proof of stake in Ethereum. And this is going to grow to half a million or even you know, close to a million validators. Another thing that is important is to understand that the proof of stake is best in class in terms of security. And just to give you one compelling reason for that is that when we have the scarce resource securing your consensus engine being money placed as collateral, you have the option to destroy it fully. If an attacker is in a position to be able to attack Ethereum, meaning that it has amassed all these economic resources, well, as soon as they make an attack, we can penalize them and remove them from the system. So the system is self-healing. Actually, because there's only a finite number of ETH out there, we can actually put an upper bound on the number of times that an attacker can successfully make an attack. You know, it's on the order of 10 times. But every time the attack happens, you know, the amount of ETH goes down and so the price of ETH will go up. And so the cost of making the attack will just keep going up and up. If you take, for example, Bitcoin and proof of work, these machines, the mining rigs, they can't be destroyed if you're an attacker. If you're an attacker and you make an attack, you can just continuously make the same attack over and over again. 
One very simple attack you can do on Bitcoin is just censorship. So you create empty blocks from now onwards, and basically the Bitcoin blockchain won't be able to process any transactions. And there's nothing preventing you from extending this attack from one day to one week to one month to one year, as long as you want to make it. And so this fragility inherent to proof of work, which turns into anti-fragility in the context of proof of stake. So we've got in DeFi this, I want to go check out DeFi Pulse, like these systems, these other applications, which use ETH as the fuel, it sounds like. Maybe fuel is the wrong term here, but it's a critical embedded component of what makes the app possible. Right. And the reason is because ETH is the native asset. So there's all sorts of other assets that could be used as collateral. So one example would be, for example, what we call wrapped Bitcoin. So you can take Bitcoin, which some people use as a store value. We have these bridges between blockchains. And so you can take your Bitcoin and you can bridge it over and bring it into Ethereum. And actually there's more than 1% of all the Bitcoins that are starting to bridge over onto Ethereum because Ethereum is just provides these unique possibilities for Bitcoin holders. But there's a key trade-off when you do this wrapping thing, which is that you're introducing risks and complexities that come with the possibility of failure. So in the context of wrapped Bitcoin specifically, there's an asset called WBTC, wrapped Bitcoin, and that's operated by BitGo, by a centralized company. So you're basically trusting this one company to play nice in the wrapping process. When you're dealing with ETH, you basically have zero risk beyond the platform. When you're working on Ethereum, you're kind of accepting the platform risk of Ethereum itself. That's kind of a sunk cost. When you use ETH, you're not increasing the sunk cost at all. You've already made that cost. Whereas if you use another asset, which is basically some sort of derivative of Bitcoin or some sort of other token, then it's not as attractive. And I guess there's also other metrics that make Ether super attractive. One is that it's become extremely liquid on exchanges and off-chain. It's also the unit of account for various large parts of the economy. So for example, the NFT economy is denominated in Ether. Another interesting aspect is that it's what I call the unit of trading. So if you look on Uniswap, you have this concept of pairs. You can swap one asset for another, and it turns out that 95% of the volume goes through these ETH pairs, where ETH is one of the two assets in the pair. It's incredible. So, I mean, so much of the, we'll call it decentralized finance or economy is being denominated natively in ETH. That's something notable in the last several months that you can see, especially NFTs and something like Uniswap is like, it is the unit that people use to describe how much something costs, which is a fascinating evolution. Are there any other major analogies that we haven't hit on that you think are really productive in understanding ETH as a whole or in some key aspect of ETH? There is one analogy which I like, but I guess it will take a few minutes to explain. Really, when you have a blockchain system, there's three key components. There's the battery, which is what represents the tokens, which is where you store the monetary energy which is the money. And then you have the engine, which is what provides security for the whole system. And then you have the solar panel, the solar panel, which is basically able to capture the energy from the economy, which is shining a lot of light. So imagine some sort of electric car, which has these three components, a solar panel, a battery, 
and an engine. Now, what proof of stake and the Ethereum system is doing is that it's really cleverly connecting all these three components in such a way that you have a very meaningful system. And one of the things that we've done, for example, is that we're not running the engine directly from solar power. This is what Bitcoin is trying to do long-term. Long-term, the fuel to the engine is transaction fees, but it turns out that transaction fees are extremely volatile. You know, on some days, you're going to have very sunny days. On some days, it might be very cloudy days. On weekends, for example, it's notable that there's these dips in demand. And instead of feeding the security engine with this very volatile amount of energy, we use the battery to feed the engine. The way we drain a constant amount of energy is through, through issuance. I think the other thing which is helpful is thinking about the engine and really the upgrade from proof of work to proof of stake. You can kind of think of it as the fuel efficiency. If you have a Tesla and you want to do 100 miles, you're going to need to, to charge the battery and it's going to cost you, let's say, $5 to do 100 miles. I just made up this number. It might be different. If you want to do 100 miles on a gasoline car, it's going to cost you, I don't know, $30 of gasoline or some number. You're going to have this ratio between the two, which could be six or whatever, 10. But it turns out that for Bitcoin and Ethereum, the ratio is roughly 20, it's 20 times more efficient to get the same amount of mileage from the fuel. You know, another thing which is interesting is this solar panel. The reason why the Ethereum economy is shining so extremely bright is because you can do everything on Ethereum. You can do anything decentralized. The amount of demand for block space on Ethereum is several times larger than Bitcoin because Bitcoin, you can only do these simple transactions. And the idea of Bitcoin is meant to be used as a store of value. So you buy Bitcoin, you hold it for a decade and then you sell it. So you've made two transactions in a decade. On Ethereum, you know, we could foresee a future. We have billions of people doing several transactions a day. And all of this is going to amass into an extremely bright economy. And we have this very clever mechanism, which Bitcoin doesn't have, which allows us to capture the energy. The energy capture is so, so important. So right now with Bitcoin, the transaction fees go to the engine as opposed to going to the battery. So in Ethereum, we're going to have this constant recharging of the battery. And actually, it's kind of crazy in the sense that the amount of monetary energy that we're going to push into the battery by charging it is greater than what we're discharging in order to power the engine. The total amount of energy in the battery which is just going to keep increasing and increasing and increasing. It's a fascinating analogy and highlights maybe the most interesting thing you've said of the many interesting things. I bought Bitcoin a few times. And I've never done anything else. Whereas with ETH, I've used it a ton. Basically, everything else I've tried in the decentralized blockchain world has been started with ETH, with owning some ETH. I just think it's sort of a fascinating concept. If that's the idea, like pressure for transactions, transactions fuel the economy. That's why money is so interesting as a technology. And you've talked through how Ethereum is going to be the place that more and more of these transactions can access that block space, so to speak. Are there meaningful competitors to that key idea that we need some sort of decentralized ledger and that transaction throughput and cost and efficiency of the system, like all these things matter to make Ethereum great. Are there other projects besides Ethereum that you're interested in also promise to fulfill some of those key functions? There's a lot of competition and innovation and experimentation in the blockchain space. And I think roughly speaking, there's two categories. There's one category of blockchains that are basically exploring a different trade-off space to Ethereum. 
the most classic trade-off is they're going to have much more scalability, 10 times more scalability at the cost of decentralization and security. So if you have example projects that do that is, for example, EOS, Binance Smart Chain, Solana, maybe Ripple and a bunch of others. To me, this is not super exciting in the sense that it's bringing us more towards the traditional world of the trusted operator, as opposed to this public good, which is really fully trustless and uncorruptible. The three properties that I mentioned, the past is immutable, the present is available to everyone, and the future cannot be stopped, and you have censorship resistance. These core fundamental properties can be relied upon if you have decentralization and security. They, they are much, much more shaky for these other projects. That's not to say that there won't be some applications that could leverage them, especially maybe the lower value applications. I guess another class of projects that are competing with Ethereum have basically tried to innovate from a technical perspective. So we have Polkadot, we have Cardano, we have Definity. And I think these are more interesting because they try to preserve decentralization and security and also solve other issues like security or governance and things like that. The thing is that there's this thing called you know, network effects. Everyone wants to be where everyone is, like Facebook. You want to be where all your friends are. And it turns out that it's the same in the financial economy. Like if you have some asset and you can't do anything with it, then you're not going to be very happy with that. But if you have an asset like ETH, you can do everything with it. ETH right now has quite a big moat. It is possible that one of these competitors in the future manages to not only significantly innovate on the technology as opposed to doing an incremental improvement, but also manage to displace the economy and move it to their economy. This has been an unbelievably interesting conversation. One of the things we like to do at the end of these breakdowns is ask for what you view as key lessons for either entrepreneurs or investors out there. I'm not sure that investors as applicable, although I, I would certainly be interested if you think there are key lessons for investors in all that you've learned and helped build with Ethereum, but certainly interested in what you think the key message is or lesson is for builders out there, given that one of Ethereum's key value propositions is how much you can build on top of it. I mean, for builders at this point, all you need is interest and motivation, and then just learn, learn, learn as much as you can, get involved as much as you can. One of the advantages as a builder is that there's a lack of talent your value as a builder is magnified. You have leverage and not just a little bit, but a lot of leverage because there's so much money out there. Just to give you one data point, Uniswap token, which is this governance token, which allows Uniswap to evolve and upgrade over time. There's a community fund associated with this token. So, and it turns out it's on the order of $10 billion. This one project, Uniswap, has $10 billion to give you as a builder to go build interesting stuff. But there's all sorts of other you know, sources of funds out there. And my rough estimate is that there's about $100 billion out there that's looking for talent to be spent. For investors, I mean, I'd say the same thing, you know, learn, learn, learn. People always ask me, should I invest in this? Should I invest in that? I tell them just don't invest in anything until you, you know what you're talking about. The market is so extremely volatile. You'll FOMO in on the way up and then you'll panic sell on the way down. Really what you want to be having is long-term conviction. And the only way that you can have long-term conviction is basically understanding this stuff. I mean, one word of caution here is that if you're intellectually curious and you go down this route, you're never going out of the rabbit hole. This rabbit hole is extremely, extremely deep. You might spend 10 years of your life going down the rabbit hole. And that's what I've done, you know, for the last eight years. 
I intend to do maybe for another 10 years. So just be intellectually curious, be intellectually honest in the sense that participate in things that you understand. And whenever there's something you don't understand, don't be shy, ask questions. There's a lot of information out there. Actually on that point, a lot of information out there. There's also a lot of bad information out there. This is a very organic and decentralized and chaotic space. Everyone has a voice. Really, you want to be in a position where you can filter the noise. And to filter the noise, you just need to apply critical thinking. This could be difficult at the beginning when you're still learning. I like podcasts. So high quality podcasts that I would recommend, for example, Bankless, that's a great podcast. Epicenter.tv is also a good podcast. Zeroknowledge.fm is a good podcast. There's Into the Ether, which is also a fantastic podcast. I think these four podcasts are a great starting point of curated information that will allow you to learn the basics enough that you can apply critical thinking for the rest of the ecosystem. Justin, this has been awesome. I've learned a lot. I came in knowing enough to be dangerous, feel like I understand why this is such an exciting system at a much deeper level. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Justin Drake. Ethereum's ability to create decentralized programmable money has me more excited about the crypto ecosystem than I have been in a long time. Many of the projects and ideas discussed in 2017 are now actual working products, and it's been fun to once again immerse myself in the cryptocurrency ecosystem. To find more episodes of breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. As a Lowe's MVPs Pro Rewards member, get reliable GE appliances for your properties and save while doing it. Right now, take advantage of bonus points for rewards, where you can earn one bonus point on every $1 spent on the GE laundry pair. Perfect for any contractor or job, this laundry pair is affordable and built to last. Head to your local Lowe's or visit Lowe's.com to save big on GE appliances. Bonus points calculated before taxes and fees after applicable discounts, if any. About 3 4 through 3 subject to change.